Welcome back to the Jewish Growth Podcast. I'm Rabbi Ken Brodkin. It is great to be with you. As my family is planning a move to the East Coast, our community here in Portland is at a crossroads seeking a new rabbi. And in the Yom Tov Davening, we ask that Hashem burden us with the blessing of the Moed, the festival. And what we see from here is that a blessing can be a burden, and a burden a blessing. It's both a burden and a blessing for a community, or an individual for that matter, to seek a rabbi. But what's it all about? Pesach is a time the Jewish people connect with the rabbi. Shabbat Gadol is the Shabbos which precedes the Chag. It's one of two main drushes that the rabbis historically gave during the year. And it builds on the idea that the Jewish people study the laws of Pesach 30 days prior to the Chag. Our first rabbi, Moshe, stood before us 30 days prior to Pesach Sheni to teach us the relevant laws. And in addition, the Gemara says there's a mitzvah to greet a person's rabbi on, on the Chag, on the festival itself. Now, the question of what a rabbi is, is relevant, of course, for the rabbi themselves. It's relevant for the Jewish community. But on a deeper level, it's really relevant for every single Jew, no matter who you are. Our relationship with our rabbis is a critical part of our journey. In my own path, I've been connected, for example, with one of my urbane, Rabbi Benji Jacoby, for 27 years. I feel so fortunate because of that. And I was thinking to myself recently that just like I was discussing my next steps in life with Rabbi Jacoby as a 19-year-old, so too in recent months. Here we are. I'm, I'm consulting with him and others about my, my family's move to the East Coast. And so a connection with a rabbi can be so enriching the involvement of rabbis in our lives is so integral to every stage. Whoever we are, our understanding of the rabbinic role f- is, is critical for our own path. As the Mishnah says, Aseh make for yourself a rabbi. And in today's podcast, I'd like to explore a conceptual framework for understanding what a rabbi is, and that way we can better appreciate what it means to seek a rabbi in our lives. Now, there's a lot of opinions a lot of scholarly opinions as to what the job of a rabbi is. Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, in the early part of the 20th century, famously said that the job of a rabbi is to do kindness to the congregation, to take up the cause of the underdog, to fight for the dignity of the poor, and defend victims from their oppressors. Rav Chaim's father-in-law, Rav Rafael Shapiro, himself a prominent rav, said that the rabbi has no job other than to learn Torah day and night, on the other hand, Rabbi Yechiel Michal Halevi Epstein, author of the Arch HaShulchan, said the job of a rabbi is to act as a posek and to rule on matters of Jewish law. In contrast, although Rav Chaim Salvechik was a leading Torah scholar of his time, he actually appointed a, a separate dayan, a judge in Brisk, to be the posek, the, the decisor, while he, Rav Chaim, was the main rabbi of the city. And there's other approaches, too. Rav Chaim Ozergajensky wrote that a rabbi is required to teach Torah, establish Jewish education, assure kosher food, and mikvah are available, in addition to caring for the underprivileged. This range of opinions is only outdone by the myriad of jobs that rabbis have actually performed for their communities over the centuries. Rabbis may teach, counsel, give encouragement to their congregation, counsel people in marriage, bury the deceased. There's rabbis who have founded yeshivas, spearheaded mental health initiatives, as well as rabbis who have taken on a myriad of halachic issues, those involved with tzedakah, leading Jewish organizations. There's just a staggering number of areas that a rabbi could be involved in. And perhaps above all else, a rabbi is an example of devotion to Torah. 
So this apparent breadth of the rabbinic role brings a couple questions to mind. First, is there some single thread that ties the disparate roles together? And secondly, where does this job of a rabbi come from? Who or what gives the rabbi authority or permission to do these jobs? There doesn't seem to be a verse in, to- in the Torah describing the appointment of rabbis. Even sources in classic halakhic works seem thin. My own research did lead me to a teaching from of Moshe Isserlis, a Ramah in Yeridea 145, and the Ramah himself, a Rav in Krakow in Poland, discusses a number of halakhic issues regarding the position of rabbi in a city. The Ramah delves into issues like who can issue halakhic rulings and whether a visiting rabbi may rule in a town with regards to communal halakhic issues. And the the Ramah also explores succession, who takes over for the rabbi. The Ramah interestingly writes that when a rabbi steps down, either his son or grandson, assuming that person is also a Torah scholar, is first in line for the position. Now, these comments about succession engendered a lot of uh, very extensive debate amongst the postgame debate, which is beyond the scope of this podcast. But what's clear from this is that our tradition does recognize a rabbinate institution governed by normative halakhic concerns. But again, where does this come from? Within the Ramah's comment on succession, there's a fascinating idea because the Ramah is saying that the son or even grandson of the rabbi takes precedence over others. Now, many argued on the Ramah with regards to this idea. So the hereditary rabbinate in most circumstances is not a relevant model. However, it does suggest something about what the Ramah, the Shulchan Aruch, believed, at least one of the authors of the Shulchan Aruch, and that is that the, I, this hereditary rabbinate is suggestive of a malchus, a kingship. While there's no rabbinate institution in the Torah, we are commanded to appoint judges and we're commanded with regards to the appointment of a king. The kingship was anointed by the Navi, the prophet, and inherited by the king's son. So is the Ramah classifying the rabbinate as a modern-day kingship that goes from father to son? That would be surprising, considering that a rabbi appears to be much more similar to a shofate, a judge. And anyways, in our democratic world, the Jewish people have nothing resembling a monarchy. Even a very powerful Jewish organization with a popular rabbi, in our modern world, any individual or group of people can walk out anytime and rent their own storefront. But here's an amazing thing. As much as rabbis seem like a far cry from kings, the Gemara in Gittin 62a actually compares rabbis with, with kings. The Gemara says as follows, Rav Hun and Rav Chizda were once sitting together, and Geneva, an individual, was passing by. And one of them said to the other, let's stand up for Geneva because he's learned in Torah. Meanwhile, Geneva came to Rav Hunar of Chizda, and he said to them, Shlama Aleichu Malchi, Shlama Aleichu Malchi, Peace unto you, kings, peace unto you, kings. They, Rav Hunan of Chizda, said to him, How do you know that rabbis are called kings? And he, Geneva, answered, Because it is written, Be Malachim Yimlochu, Through me, kings shall rule. Through me, through the Torah, kings will reign. 
Now, this is a fascinating incident. The Gemara is identifying rabbis with kingship. But yet we need to clarify how are rabbis similar to kings? It's not as if rabbis have executive power to raise armies and build bridges. And amazingly, this is not the only example of how our tradition connects rabbis with Malchus' kingship. The Rambam, Maimonides, and Hilchos Talmud Torah writes that the Jewish people have three crowns. The crown of Torah learning, the crown of kingship, and the crown of kahuna, priesthood. But which is the greatest of these three crowns? Now we know that only that of the three crowns, kingship and, and priesthood are limited as to who can attain them. Only the crown of Torah learning is, learning is accessible to everyone. And the Rambam actually says that this is the greatest of all crowns. Lest we say that other crowns are greater, writes the Rambam, the crown of Torah learning is greatest of all, as it says, through me, through the Torah, kings will rule. And so the Rambam, too, is suggesting this connection between rabbi and king, and he, too, is drawing on this verse. It's in Mishlei 8, which says, through me, through the Torah, kings reign. Because, as the Rambam says, the rabbi or the Torah scholar wears the royal crown of Torah. Now, obviously, the rabbi and the king are very, very different institutions. A king can levy taxes and draft soldiers. The rabbi does not have executive authority, per se. But what common thread could our sages have seen in these two roles? Moreover, maybe we should start with this. What is the essence of a king in Judaism? And the Torah and Devarim, Parshas Shoftim, describes the Jewish king who has a special mitzvah. He's actually commanded to write a Torah. And the verse says, imo kol chayav. And it shall, be with, he, he shall, it shall be with him all of his days. Laman yilmad lira es Hashem alokav, in order that he will learn to fear Hashem his God, to guard all the words of this Torah and these statutes to perform them. And so what emerges from this picture is that the king is given authority. And yet that power does not belong to the king. The authority comes from God's will as expressed in the Torah. And so the king is required to write a Torah and learn from it all of his days so that he will remember the source of his authority and be an example of that. By learning Torah all of his days, the king becomes a living Torah who stands an example fearing God before his people. That's what King David was, the greatest of all kings. We know our sages teach us that David HaMelech was constantly learning Torah day and night. But the true sovereign power of the universe is Hashem, and God's will is expressed through the Torah. The king represents the sovereign power of the Torah. And hence the verse says, Be malachim yimlochu, through me kings shall reign. We now have a deeper understanding of what our rabbis teach us. Man Malchi Rabbanan, who are the kings, the rabbis? To be sure, there's great differences between a king and a rabbi, but both king and rabbi represent the sovereign authority of the Torah. If the king represents the authority through their executive decrees, the rabbi represents the sovereignty of the Torah through their knowledge or their activities as a rabbi. A rabbi's job might be defined by the times they live in, the needs of the community they serve, their own talents. And in all of these various jobs, the 
common thread is to reveal God's malchus, God's kingship in the world. It's something we can see through many great leaders. Rav Moshe Feinstein, for example, came to the United States in the 1930s. The following 50 years were decades of profound medical and technological advancements, as well as profound societal change. And through all of this, this one man from Eastern Europe who mastered all of Torah was able to shed light on the way of Hashem in every new issue, be it adoption, artificial insemination, mental health treatment, food production technology, the death penalty, and a myriad of issues. We know Rav Moshe became the standard bearer of Psach Halacha, Halachic rulings, in the United States and the world. But his contributions are a prime example of how a rabbi can fulfill the role of revealing God's kingship in the world. Because of Rav Moshe, people could see how the word of God guides us in every modern era issue. And so one thread that can tie the disparate rabbinic role together is the idea of Malchus, bringing God's sovereignty into the world. But there's another critical aspect to understand. The Gemara in Horios relates that Ruban Gamliel sought to appoint two Torah scholars to head the yeshiva of his generation. And at first the scholars refused, and Ruban Gamliel said to them, Does it seem to you that I'm offering you power? It is service that I'm giving to you. As the verse says, and he quotes a verse, when the advisors of Rechavim spoke to the new king Rechavim, and they spoke to him, Lamor, saying, If only today you will be a servant of this nation. Now, when Rabbi Gabriel wanted to appoint the scholars, apparently they felt that the rabbinic position was a matter of personal power or honor, and so they wanted to avoid it. And that's why Rabban Gamliel taught them otherwise. It may seem like a position of power, but in fact, it is avdus, it is service unto the Jewish people. And the verse that he quotes is when the advisors of the newly appointed King Rechavim urged the new king to avoid burdensome tax hikes. As king, he is to recognize that he is a servant unto the people. And it's only logical that the king is a public servant. The Torah from which the king draws his authority is not only the will of God, it's the inheritance of the Jewish people. As it says, Torah tzivalanu Moshe, Morasha kihilas Yaakov. The Torah which Moshe commanded us, an inheritance of the entire Jewish people, the, the community of Yaakov. Kings who derive their power from the Torah do so for the sake of the Jewish people. In line with this idea, when Rav Chaim Soloveitchik served as the Rav and Brisk, part of his compensation actually was firewood. You can imagine it was cold and brisk. I guess they didn't have gas heaters then. And the problem was that Rav Chaim insisted leaving his wood pile unlocked so that local poor folks could come and partake of the wood. And an overabundance of wood was consumed, and the people who hired Rav Chaim Salvechik were not happy with the situation, and they insisted that he lock up his wood. Only Rav Chaim told them that he could not comply, because he could not enjoy the warmth in his home if other Jews who were cold and suffering could not take from his stock. Our sages teach us that the Torah scholar is like a melech. He's like a king because a Torah scholar reveals God's sovereignty in the world. 
And I think a big part of this is just the simple idea that a rabbi is meant to be a guide who discerns the needs of the people. A man in Brisk once came to Rav Chaim Soloveitchik and asked him if he was able to, this was before the holiday of Pesach, he asked him if he was able to fulfill the mitzvah of four cups with milk. Well, in fact, the Mishnah teaches us that we're required to make sure that every person has four cups of wine for the Seder, which are drunk reclining, and royalty used to drink reclining. On the Seder night, we're all royalty. And so the four cups actually must be fulfilled with wine or without wine with other significant drinks, but milk does not suffice. And yet, when Rav Chaim got this question, he responded by giving the man a sum of money that was quite a bit larger than needed to provide wine for his Seder. And Rav Chaim explained that if the man was considering using milk for his Seder, he was not only lacking wine, he must be lacking meat and other basic needs for his Seder. And this story illustrates, in a very poignant way, how Rav Chaim was not just a rabbi who answered questions. He was a guide who saw the needs, not only of the community, but of individual people. And such examples of great rabbis, we see not only people who knew a lot of Torah, but people who stood as a caring, discerning guide for the Jewish people. And that's why we need rabbis. Just like a community needs to have a rabbi for guidance in major issues, every individual should make for themselves a rabbi to connect with, as, our, as the Mishnah says. And that rabbi should be a person who's a model of Torah, of healthy, balanced living, of a strong marriage or other relationships, a model of optimism, a model of climbing through life challenges that we all face. Rabbis are fallible like all people, yet when we seek and make for ourselves a good rabbi to connect with, we will deepen our own connection to the Torah they represent. And in that light, the burden of finding a rabbi for ourselves truly is a blessing. Thanks for being with me. I'm Ken Brodkin, and this is the Jewish Growth Podcast.